Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. Winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they've taken their expertise on the road as the full-time family, where they inspire, coach, and lead people to create their unique, deliberate family life using a simplified three-step process. Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show. Join us for twice-weekly episodes. Each week, Nat and Sarah will teach us how to deliberately create results in all areas of life using their unique three-step process. Not only that, they'll also sit down with some of their favorite high achievers who have manifested what most merely dream about. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Hey dreamers. Today we continue the conversation with a serial entrepreneur, Chris Syed. Aren't you glad I didn't just end the word with serial? Because then that would be scary. But hailing from Brisbane, Australia, this former head of product at Uber Developer Platform is one creative guy. He builds strategies, products, messages, brands, ecosystems, standards, and startups. A magician when it comes to developer platforms, he has that added ability to inspire and teach youngpreneurs how to take their own ideas and bring them to market. A mentor at Founders for Founders, a community of startup founders, he recognizes the power of coming together and sharing the journey. A teacher at the core, he has lived the Silicon Valley life and now wants to share what he's learned with the next generation back in Australia. I admire his desire to pass on knowledge in a way that makes a real difference. So thanks, Chris, for taking some time to share with our community of dreamers how they can take their ideas and start risking them into the light showing them how to work the head, torso, and tail, as you like to say, of a development so that it be a complete and success in the long run. So if you're cool, Chris, should we jump in? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for the very kind introduction. (laughs) I know you did all that. That young, like you guys can't see him, but he looks like he's 15. And (laughs) somehow he lived the Silicon Valley life in the past. And that's what I want to start with. Like, how does a Brisbane boy land in Silicon Valley. Wow. Um, that is a, that is a very, uh, big question because it, it's really, <laughs> it's a series of incremental, um, little course corrections and, you know, aha moments that lead you there. Right. Um, mm. I, if I'll maybe do a bit of a hop, skip and a jump through the story. Um, perfect. I've, I've guess inspired by my parents. Um, you know, I, I became, very curious about technology, about computers, about the future, um, just by, and, and entrepreneurship actually as well, by watching them run businesses. They had, you know, one of the first point of sale systems that was computerized. Um, they, they showed me Star Trek and they, 
they taught me that really anything I wanted to do was possible. And, and I had the, um, the naivete to, to believe them, I guess. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I, watching their example and then getting very passionate about computers and software and programming, uh, I, I started to realize that the best examples of people who are successful at doing that were based in either Redmond, um, at just outside of Seattle, which is where Microsoft is and, and now Amazon, um, or we're in Silicon Valley, you know, where every other company you've ever heard of is pretty much based, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google and so on. Uh, and so uh, over time, I eventually started to model my business and my thinking around how they do business and how they launch products and how they brand products and how they design products. Uh, and then uh, eventually start, started to understand that I actually really needed to be there. Um, and along that way, along that journey was just really countless mentors and advisors who gave me nudges in the right direction until one of my mentors um, finally said, you know, no, you need to be in Silicon Valley now. Um, mm. Actually, two of them, two of them in, in particular, a guy called Marty and a guy called Nick. And they were like, you need to be in Silicon Valley now. You're just wasting time and wasting your talent. So, um, you know, Nick basically grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, uh, I don't care how you fund it, put it on your credit card, but I'll come with you. Let's wow. go. And, and so we spent a month there. And within a couple of days, I, um, I have felt it like I'd come home. It was, I'd met people and saw wow. things that, that felt immediately familiar, uh, in a way that really I hadn't felt at home. And, um, so, so and can I ask a question about that? So what do you is the difference from looking from afar? So you're doing some research about what goes on in these places, these meccas. What was the difference between watching, studying from afar and actually being immersed? Yeah, it's, it's like night and day. And, and this actually happened to me again recently when I was watching China from afar. And then I went mm -hmm. there just for a few weeks and the same thing hit me in the face, which is, it's very, it, it's, it's one thing to understand something intellectually and academically. Mm -hmm. um, it is dramatically different to understand it viscerally and emotionally and practically. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it's just completely different. And that's why oftentimes the first piece of advice I give to any wannabe, you know, tech startup entrepreneur is go spend the better part of a month there if you can, at least. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will go there for a week or two weeks or three weeks. I'll, I'll say, you know, do the, you know, as I, I sometimes call it, the Chris Saad tour, like go for the month and really try to live and breathe it. It's, yeah. it's just different. It's different. You, and a lot of what you will learn is not from people giving you explicit advice, but rather through osmosis, through drinking the water and <laughs> sitting at a cafe and hearing everybody about around you talking about tech. Um, wow. And yeah, you'll, you'll just learn a completely different style of thinking at a different pace. Was your work with Uber in Silicon Valley or back in Australia? No, it was in Silicon Valley. Well, technically it was in San Francisco, which is technically not part of the Valley, but it really, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's part of the Bay Area and, and Silicon Valley. Yeah. So in, in the city there is where their headquarters is. And getting to work, what was it, what was that environment like working at Uber? Well, Uber was everything. It was, it was a roller coaster ride. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it, it start. it was, my dream job um, to, to head up a developer platform for a top five ish, you know, tech company um, was literally something I had dreamed of doing. I didn't think I was really uh, in a position to get that kind of role and was very excited to get it. Mm -hmm. um, 
initially there was a lot of autonomy and a lot of uh, agency to to imagine and build whatever I wanted. Uh, and that ebbed and fl- and that's what I was promised initially, and I was equally excited about. And that ebbed and flowed as kind of people and personalities and politics came in and out of the picture, and um, and then we you know we scaled things up. So I, you know that was an incredible journey, new new kinds of hustle and new kinds of operational excellence. That you know, for example, I had thought I was really hustling and working to a certain standard when I was running my own businesses and my own startups. Yeah. But when you work with some of those AAA players running at, at Uber speed, um, you, you, it, really, it literally recalibrates your brain about what is possible, about the kind of quality of work you need to do and how fast you need to move. Um, and then eventually it became quite a, you know, emotional roller coaster with some of the, the news media and some of the, the controversy that came out of it. And mm-hmm. I, I learned probably just as much about that uh, sorry, from that as anything mm-hmm. else. And, and um, you know, some of that was accurate, but really most of it was um, quite a fascinating disconnect with reality. How do you, yeah, so basically, um, I'm sure people, that's a good topic for a second, just to touch on, because, you know, we often talk about, we herald successes and when everything's going well, but how do you handle it when, you know, it's not exactly this, this is a bit dramatic, but it's like people are turning against what you're creating. How did you deal with that? Well, I think for most people there, um, including myself, I, I had really drunk the Kool-Aid, right? I was, I was, was, and to many, to a large extent, still convinced that Uber is, is a net positive for the world. Um, and the people there are working with basically good intentions to, to realize that vision and, and make a positive impact on the world. Mm-hmm. And so, um, given that level of conviction and focus, we, most of us just kept our head down and kept working. Uh, the, the, the challenge of course, is when you're a year in, um, you know, and, and every good intention or best intention is reinterpreted and remixed as some sort of nefarious thing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. every, every step or misstep that that happened in the past, um, you know, is drudged up and recontextualized and put to dark music and black and white features. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it just awesome. starts to get wearing for sure. But, uh, you know, for the most part, we just kind of kept focused and kept executing. And now I'm supposed to talk about a whole bunch of other things, but I have to just ask this. Why do you think that society is so afraid of shared... I don't, what, what do you call uber and airbnb and like do you call this the shared economy what do, you, what do you call this kind of idea that we trust each other around business like what what do you call yeah. that well it has it's had a, a number of different names the collaborative economy the sharing economy the on-demand economy i i like on demand the most because okay. what i've found is it actually doesn't matter how the demand is fulfilled uh whether it's from shared resources from others or whether it's contractors or whether it's full-time employees the, the key mechanic, the key insight, the key thing that's disruptive is mm-hmm. that people, customers get it now, right now with the press mm-hmm. of a button. It's extremely customer centric um, and customer obsessed. Um, and so I think really the on-demand economy is the right name for it. Mm-hmm. And why are people scared of that? I'm not. I, 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 freaking, I, I freaking love it. But why are other yeah, people? Yeah, I, th- I think there are many reasons why they're scared of it. I mean, in the case of Uber specifically, I think the legitimate 
complaint by let's say the taxi industry was well mm -hmm. we have all of these artificial constraints on us like regulation and um the medallion system and so on and and you know why do they get to skirt that you know th those regulations yeah. and i think that that was a fair criticism but at the end of the day um it, it was it's difficult to switch from their model to uber's model where they have hundred thousand dollar fit outs and you know heavy branding and livery and um you know manual dispatch and, and a lack of a promise to the customer in terms of when they'll show up and why and, and they just didn't understand or have the capital sadly when, uh, to, to compete and, and i don't think it was realistic that they would but uh you know the controversy i'm referring to is less about that and more some of the you know the controversy around the ceo and some of the other you know, aggressive tactics of the, of the uh, internally um which you know is, is a whole rabbit hole of a discussion but uh, i was yeah, gonna that, say that, like oh maybe i don't even know about that hole so don't even uh we won't yeah. go there on this one but but basically <laughs> you just said something that that was really interesting because sometimes innovation or something new exposes the old meaning it just it, it highlights things that society didn't even know was going on like you said in the taxi industry like these what? constraints that were imposed you know like and I, I get that's i think that's the discomfort actually because these constraints have been in place for a long time and it's going to make somebody uncomfortable um yes you know to start yeah, so, them exposed. So, yeah i mean the broad category of of what this is and the euphemism silicon valley uses is disruption right mm -hmm. um and really what disruption is is a, is a nice way a nice turn of phrase of saying destruction of the old and the reinvention into the new and so the old the you know, the taxi industry or whatever is is going to feel a great deal of pain um in many cases workers and general society is going to feel a great deal of pain um because mm. disruption is tough and change is hard and most people don't like it um, and, you know, in my belief, really, it's kind of private enterprises job to disrupt and it's public enterprises, you know, the government's job to smooth out the, the changes to help with the transitions. Um, and so, it, yeah, disruption is really scary. And, but it, it, it's by definition, um, looking at old problems with fresh eyes, using fresh tools uh, and going back to first principles. And a lot of the latest disruption has come down to the fact that you have a supercomputer in your pocket, mm. you have um, internet connectivity in the air, and you have um, people who are, and all of the old rules of don't get into cars with strangers, and you know, don't let other people into your home, the, all of those have been thrown out because we can kind of disintermediate trust and, and put it into the network. So you know, th this allows us to rethink everything about society and the way we do business. And you know, thank you to this new way technology that allows a Brisbane person like you to speak to a Switzerland person like me and put it on okay. iTunes for everybody else. So I'm yeah, going yeah. to selfishly um, take something you just said and position what we're doing with this podcast is we want people to disrupt their own life, their own lives in creating their new life story, meaning you know, killing off the old story that's been potentially living them in order to yes. create the story that they want to live into the future. Because I feel that sometimes even just identifying, exposing that it's there is really powerful. You know, you, you, you gain this awareness that, hey, this is a pattern that I've, it's just been going on. And perhaps I have more, um, 
I'm more powerful than I think in scripting my story. And so that's what I didn't even think about that until you were talking. I was like, Oh my God, that's what we're doing here. So thank you yeah. for, well, I don't necessarily want to use the word disruption because everybody else does, but perhaps that's what we're doing. Yeah. And, and you know, narratives are a huge part of the way the human brain perceives and, and exists in the world. Right. I think it's a way that we pattern match and we simplify the, the reality we're in to a very, you know, it, it, it's a way that we digest it and place ourselves in it. Mm. Um, and narratives are absolutely essential to the way that we think and act in the world. Mm. But your narrative can either serve you and uplift you and empower you, or it can disempower you and, and limit you. Mm -hmm. um, and literally the only thing you need to do to have a higher kind of conception of yourself is to rewrite the narrative in your head about yourself. Um, you know, this, it's, I want to caveat all of that with, you know, there are obviously people who are, have very real constraints on their lives, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they're, they're, um, unfortunately stuck in poverty or they're, they aren't, they have disabilities, but, but for the most part, um, even just changing your perspective on the things that you're experiencing and the way you react to the things happening to you and at you, um, is a, is a very powerful tool and, and one that I'm constantly trying to question my own narratives about myself and, and try to figure out the next highest vision and version of that narrative. Wow. Really cool. I, you know, when you said how powerful this supercomputer is that we have in our pocket, referring to the yeah. smartphone, I assume. Um, yes. You know, we have this even more powerful supercomputer in our head um, <laughs> and it's either an ally or it's operating an old system. Like it's on an old operating system. And so, right. um, you know, that's, that's the thing that most interested me in university. I guess that's why I studied. That's what I've been studying my whole life. Um, this other supercomputer, but I can see that I, I could go in that direction, but I want to pull it back just a little bit because I'm sitting here with a startup expert who will hate that title, but I'm going to give it to you, a startup, <laughs> a startup expert. So can you just give a little distinction between like small business, entrepreneur, startup? Because I know sometimes all these words get molded into one. Are they the same thing? Yeah. And, and in my experience, um, particularly in Australia, those things are often used interchangeably and they're mm -hmm. not. Um, mm -hmm. A small, small business is typically something that is oriented around a relatively small ambition uh, and relatively local ambition mm -hmm. and relatively slow growth, uh, slow organic growth, meaning I'm going to buy widgets for a dollar and I'm going to sell them for $2 and I'm going to do that in my local neighborhood. I'm going to set mm -hmm. up a retail store. I'm going to set up some kind of business um, and, and start to trade and try to make revenue and, and things like that. Uh, a startup is a totally different beast. The goal of a startup is not necessarily to make revenue initially, and it's not even the, the traditional business principles. It's, its goal is to massively disrupt a category of something and to grow geometrically, not, not linearly. So not this year you make $5 and next year you make $10 and the year after that you make $20. The, the goal is to... Well, actually, even there, I'm doubling. So if you if you were doubling, that's okay. <laughs> the doubling is okay. <laughs> if you were to if you were to just make five extra dollars each year, you're in trouble. That's linear growth. But if you're doubling every year, that's geometric growth, right? That's what we call a hockey stick. 
And that's your job as a startup. And also your job is to grow inorganically. So it's not to um, make revenue and then spend it within your means. It's to raise capital and burn it beyond your means so that you can grow faster than any of the other competitors in the space, take all of the oxygen out of the room before they know what's happening and deliver a, a materially better service, um, which using typically using technology and optimized processes and first principles and kind of customer centric thinking, which all of that together will produce a kind of disruption that a small business is not designed to do. And actually I'll, I'll just add to that. I'll just add to that. That yeah. typically, unlike a small business, which is typically owned by one person or maybe a partnership with someone or maybe the bank gives you a loan, a, a startup is, is, if you think of it like a pie, your, your goal is not to own 100% of the pie. Your goal is to, or the, the way you go about doing what I just described earlier, mm -hmm. is to give away pieces of that pie such that each time you give a piece of that pie to somebody, that person adds so much value that the pie itself grows. Mm. And so your overall percentage ownership will shrink, but the, the value of the remaining slice that you own is bigger than it would have been um, if you were just doing it by yourself and owning 100% of the pie. Awesome visual. Honestly, like really clear. And like my mind's begging, what kind of mindset do you have as a founder to steal such oxygen in order to disrupt the world. Why would you do that? You have, well, you have to have an abundance mindset. It's, it's it. literally, it, it, it all comes down to an abundance mindset. Um, you know, the, the worst thing you can do is to be constrained by the accidents of birth. So like the geography that you were born in is kind of like people typically just work in that environment. Um, the things that are immediately placed in front of them, they, meet, they just kind of work on those problems. The constraints they're given by the government or their family or the, their boss, they typically accept those constraints and work within them. These are all either kind of uh, just, I don't want to use too pejorative language, but they're, they're easy things to do. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the, the opposite thing or the, the startup mindset is one of abundance and one of possibilities. It's like, well, I don't, I don't have to accept any of these things. I can, I can actually start from first principles and think about the problem from, um, from an entirely blank piece of paper and, and do the most effective thing instead of just the thing, just operate within the space I've been given. So like if you're listening to someone's idea that wants to change the world, disrupt things, how do you identify or how do you listen for a great idea versus an insane idea? <laughs> or maybe they're the same. Are they the same thing for a while? Well, the, the a, a cliche or an axiom in the startup world is ideas. Uh, I, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. But, you can. Uh, okay. Ideas are like assholes. Everyone's got one. <laughs> Very good. Right. And so, you know, maybe a more PC way of saying that is, uh, you know, ideas are worthless. Um, and so what you'll often encounter is people saying, well, I have an idea and I want you to sign my non-disclosure agreement before I tell you what it is. And, um, you know, it's, oh, it's the best idea since sliced bread and idea, idea, idea. Okay. Actually, every, as I've touched on, everybody's got ideas. Um, what the real question is, what are the thousand other ideas and decisions that you're going to execute to make this idea a reality. Um, and Boom. Did everybody hear yeah. that? 
That's the distinction right there. Awesome. Right. Right. So when you, when a, when a founder would in, approach me as, as an investor or as a potential advisor and a founder approaches any investor, they're not listening for the quality of the idea. Well, they, you know, they are obviously curious about the idea and that plays a part, but they're much more curious about the thought process that got them to that decision about the, the, the idea. Mm-hmm. And also they're much more curious about, well, what have you done so far to prove some of your hypotheses correct? Uh, and what have you done to actually materialize that idea into reality in, insofar as you're able to do that within your means? And then what have you done to pull out all the stops and take away all the excuses and actually made something real? So it's not enough to say, I have an idea. Where's your, where's your pitch deck where you've clearly thought through the details of that idea? It's not enough to have a pitch deck. Where are your mock-ups and wireframes about how the interface would work? It's not enough to have an interface or a mock-up where is the prototype that you got made by some guy on the girl on Elance with, uh, you know, by spending some credit card dollars on that. And it's not enough to have that. It's like, well, have you gone and actually put this in front of users and got some users to actually start using it? And have you proved that people care about it and, and will stick around and keep using it and, and so on and so forth. And so depending on what stage you're at as an investor, as an advisor, I'd want to see some of those very concrete steps along the journey of making your idea a reality. Awesome. Cause I was going to ask you if, if there's a framework for, for mapping it out, if you're the, the person with the idea, but I think you just gave some key elements. Like basically what I, what I'm getting is the mindset is abundance possibility and you have to have a go for it mentality. Like you have to be able to risk it all at every moment. Meaning you said credit card dollars. Did everybody hear that? That means I'm going for this. Like this is not, um, like you said, comfortable behavior. This sounds like people that are willing to live in the unknown zone, you know, that discomfort zone. So um, now, do you think people are born that way or can you cultivate that? Well, you know, it's often talked about like there's risk sensitivity and risk tolerance um, Mm -hmm. that people have. And maybe that you're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's... Was that that a North American joke? Oh, it is Aussie. Okay. No, no, I'm that, like, I got that. Old, yeah, that's an old Australian joke. It's a hair salon thing. No, but maybe you're born with it. Maybe you, it's uh, something you learn. I don't know. But what I, what I know for me is I, I don't think it's actually about risk tolerance for me. I think it's about reframing risk. So I think if you do not try, you are 100% guaranteed to fail. Um, and if you do not... Um, attempt to live a larger life with a more ambitious outcome, then you are guaranteed to live a mediocre life. Um, and, and so I, my sense of it is like, it's not actually about being more risk tolerant. It's actually recognizing the risk that's already in my life and the virtually guaranteed outcomes if I don't try. And then on the flip side, you're just as likely to lose your job or be susceptible to your, your whole category of skill set being made redundant by robots and AI. And like, so all of these comfort zones that we think are, are so safe are just illusionary, right? They're just fake. Um, and so, you know, nothing more scary to me in terms of risk than, than wasting my potential and my life living someone else's uh, dream. You know, there's that, there's that saying, you're either working on your own dreams or someone else's. So. Uh, and I'd rather be working on mine. Did your parents teach you that? At a, like, did you always know what you're saying now, that ability to reframe 
the risk because a lot of people are living in a whole other frame around risk. I'm sure they did. And, and I think they did as much, as much through their actions as they did through their words. You know, mm -hmm. they, they were entrepreneurs in, in their own right. Now they were running small businesses. They had little video stores and uh, later they started a cafe. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess growing up, my template was you can just run your own thing. Mm -hmm. um, they had their, you know, they had uh, normal full-time jobs in the middle there of my life, but my early life and later life, they were running their own businesses. Mm. Um, so, you know, and again, through, I, I referenced Star Trek earlier, like through silly things like that, with through the movies and shows they showed, they, they showed me, um, they kind of demonstrated that, uh, you know, you can just reframe the world and make different decisions. I mean, that I, I should, I would love a study to ask, people who do amazing things in the world whether star trek was in their early years because i know for nat it was such a critical um teacher in her life same thing that reality is malleable and that you can actually shift shape and and all these ideas it's it's incredible what a um first teacher it was in her life as well so i don't think i'd love to know that that'd be kind of cool what a study I, I would love to, yeah i'd love to know that too i mean i it's it's it might sound ridiculous to those who've who think they've seen it and, and discount and hated it or have heard a lot about it but think it's nerdy but like i can't overstate its impact on my my life um mm. and it, it, that may seem completely crazy but it, the principles in that show and and this the the parables of each episode which basically is a series of parables um were yeah i think instrumental in the way i think but you know and as were the, my mentors and my friends and and i also i learned as much from watching bad examples as good examples i i, I found everything that i saw that i felt was suboptimal or i saw people ending up in bad situations or making bad decisions or making small decisions mm -hmm. all of those added up in my mind is thinking like i don't well i don't want to do that so how did they end up there okay mm -hmm. let's not do that and so i kind of also learned a lot from the bad examples as well so do you get, ever get afraid as you move forward and, and, you know, like uncover new ground? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I definitely, I have, I think a healthy sense of paranoia that <laughs> you, you have to, right. I mean, you, it's not, this is not about being Pollyannic or, or ignoring risk. It's just about recognizing that you can manage it and that it's, you know, in Silicon Valley, failure is an option. Failure is celebrated almost. Um, it's, it, it, this is another mindset difference, I think. We talked about abundance and, and possibility thinking. The other is to putting, putting aside the, the meaning that you ascribe to failure. Um, there's a famous saying, I think it was, I don't know, Einstein or something, is like, the only reason I ever succeeded is because I failed a hundred times more than I succeeded. I mean, this is, this is not a nicety or a platitude. You, you, I... I some of my career I describe as failing up. I mean, I literally, I have failed so much. And I wrote a blog post about all of the things I've learned from my failures. Um, it's just, you have to reframe failure as a, it's not something to be afraid of. It's, it's actually part of the process. It's, it's, it's an integral part of the process. Yeah. Um, the companies and people who fail fastest uh, and most are the ones who quickly achieve, um, who figure out the right path before everybody else. And so I guess to answer your question directly, I, I'm not so afraid of, I definitely experience fear. Um, it's not necessarily around 
failure. It's um, for me, I have, and, and Nat will know, will knows this actually. I have a, a I have social anxiety. So I, I'm, um, yeah, coming up, you know, I've for, through a series of sequence of, I guess, self-reinforcing things. I'll, I'll, I have a lot of fear around public speaking and things like that. That's where most of my fear comes from. Got it. Okay. So you, you do have that challenge and something that you're working with to, to overcome it. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's an omnipresent thing in my life and I've had to come up with lots of different hacks and techniques to, to have it not hold me back. Brilliant. Love that. And I just, I want to leave it on that because of what you just mentioned about failure, because it's a theme, it's something that's been coming up and I can see that there is a reframe around this idea of failure that successful people know and that people who are waiting to be successful may misinterpret, meaning thank you for clarifying that. Um, and I just want to thank you for being the kind of person that's willing to share your experience and knowledge and I can just feel, and, and Nat definitely knows that you're on a mission to make a difference in the world. So we feel really privileged that you were um, open to collaborating with us. So thank you so much. Oh, no worries. Thank you for the invitation. This has been tons of fun. <laughs> you're so welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to... Put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.